Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. People of spirit, attention. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 581. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Hey, boy, was that ill last week, man? You're fighting fit, fighting fit there now. I'll tell you what's coming in day sure. First off is the main fiction, Heart of Vesta by Dimitria Nikolaidou. Then as it is the end of the end of the month there, Mr. JJ Campanella throws down another science news for us. That is all coming in the this show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, I missed last, because I was a little bit ill, I missed last week's period. Oh, I just wasn't in the mood for anything, man. I just wanted to kind of go back to bed. But I want to give a big heads up, because we are on 4.30 on our kind of goal to 500. And I want to give a big heads up to... Don Nab, Don, thank you so much indeed, sir. Yes, very nice. Timothy Alling, Tim, that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Author Michael Kilman. Now, Michael, have I mentioned you before? I don't know. I was in years of, of, of hallucinations and all sorts. Lorraine Crestone, Crestone. Lorraine, thank you so much. And Phil Rossi, Rossi lad, thank you indeedy. Big, huge thank you. Listen, support the show. We kind of, every month, we kind of come around to this kind of payday and it knocks with. And we've been around this kind of 4.30 mark for ages. Let's see what we can kind of up it up there. Come on. Right then. The main fiction. It is Heart of Vesta by Dimitria Nikolaidou. And just fantastic. It is narrated by... Nicole Doolin as well. Oh, ho, ho. Dimitria is a PhD candidate researching the relationship between speculative fiction and role-playing games. Her fiction has been published in Galaxy of Curiosities, See the Elephant, Metamorphosis, the anthology After the Happy Ever After, great title, lad, and various Greek anthologies. She is in-house writer and editor for Architecto Publications, which I think I got that wrong as well, mine. Teaches creative writing focused on the fantastic and is always planning a vacation somewhere in Europe. Now, Nicole, 
Like I say, this story is narrated by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a voice actor and writer of fiction, scripts and poetry. She has performed narrations for a number of popular and award-winning podcasts such as the Nosley podcast, Tales to Terrify and Farfetch Fables. She also narrates classic literature in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more about Nicole, visit her website, NicoleDoolin.com. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Heart of Vesta by Dimitra Nikolaidou Narrated by Nicole Doolan Pros of being short? Your fellow combatants can and will use your shoulder as an impromptu QRPG tripod to shoot at the mutated plant person attempting to swallow your head. Cons of being short. After being hit... The exploding plant person will drench you in I-Corps top to bottom, covering all your visor sensors in green-tinted blue. Done making friends, Corina? Can we move to the next room now? Shut it, Bjorn. Corina Moretti activates the self-cleaning function of her visor. Behind her, Anton Vasilevich reloads. Three more rooms to go, and then the really hard part begins. The mess had started 45 minutes ago, with the most annoying music playing in the background. Of course, all elevator music is annoying. Notes go sour when trapped in a steel cage. This particular piece, however, was savagely ravaging Karina Moretti's nerves. It might have been that the elevator itself was now descending to the heart of planetoid Vesta, carrying her and four other armor-clad soldiers toward a Shit show of unknown magnitude. Or it might be that, though they were supposedly the first to use this particular lift in a hundred and fifty years, it still worked suspiciously fine. Or maybe the music was really, really bad. Of all the things to survive the apocalypse, Alejandro whispered soundlessly. The calm in his throat translated his words into sounds echoing directly into their cochlear implants. It had taken Karina some time to get used to this particular tech, but the benefits were clear. Anyone spying on them would only see five silent figures in sculpted black armor, face-covering helms and enough weaponry to storm a small island kingdom back on Earth. I wouldn't bet on that last bit, Anton said. If the music was truly the only thing that had survived up here, then Eurocore would have sent a bunch of scientists to collect Dr. Maris's research instead of deploying us. Yes, you are right, and since we are on topic, are all bioengineers as insane as Dr. Maris was, Karina? Alejandro asked her. Is it a prerequisite at your academy, perhaps? Insanity is a matter of perspective. She didn't hear herself speak, but she knew the others did, and they groaned at her. Then insanity knocked at the elevator doors. It knocked hard, and it knocked twice. They braced themselves, but the thing, whatever it was, did not break through at first try. The elevator kept ascending. Two floors down, the violent knock came again, as if something larger than a man had thrown itself at them. Then two floors after it returned, and this time the steel doors nearly parted. The music scrambled but didn't stop. It was still playing as Karina and Alejandro moved to the center of the elevator's cage, as Anton and Bjorn placed their trigger fingers on their weapon's pad, as silent Mac drew her knives and stood in front of the door. At the fourth blow, the music shrilled, and the elevator stopped midway between floors, the doors opened on their own and revealed a solid brick wall. Only their legs and feet were now exposed, just below the knee, and their field of vision was limited to a half-darkened floor outside the cage. Nothing moved. It's coming. Mac mouthed and she crouched slowly, knives crossed. Bad idea, Karina thought, unless of course she is baiting them. And if it was indeed a bait, it worked. A rope? No, a vine. A thick strand of ivy. A plant thing flew upward through the opening and thrust itself upon Mac's visor.
wrapping its strands around her encased head and pulling her heart against the wall. Her head and torso slammed against the small opening, and she lifted and locked her legs in the corner just in time to stop herself from being pulled outside into the darkness. Now, Mac voiced. Bjorn grabbed the thing with both hands and pulled. Anton, true to his shtick, aimed at the darkness below, waiting for whatever the Swede was pulling up to emerge. Instead, the vine shivered and bloomed around McKenna's head. Her black helmet was now crowned with tenths of tiny black flowers, puffing silver dust in the air. For a moment, the dust hovered, then the specks descended, filling the tiny elevator cage, settling on their visors, trying to slide inside the nanoglass. Karina flinched but ordered herself to breathe normally. The helmets would filter everything out. They had been tested in the highlight of the corporate wars, and no plant dust could be finer than the vapors they were made to counter. The plant seemed to realize its limits, because with a sickening sound, it suddenly sprouted knife-like thorns. Bjorn managed to let go just before they shredded his fingers off. Still, they filled Mac's captive visor with deep scratches, and where those crisscrossed, her helmet nearly split open. The Swede now grabbed a thornless section and began wrestling with it, trying to take it off McKenna's head. It was Alejandro who ended the whole thing. He grabbed one of McKenna's twin knives, activated their sonic function, and slashed the taut vine a few centimeters off Bjorn's fingers. It screeched and wailed, then curled upon itself and crawled out leaving them once again alone in the stranded elevator. A plant! Was that a damn plant? Alejandro asked, holding the blade with both hands. Still can't swear properly, this one. Karina picked the leftover strands off McKenna's helmet. No blood, no flesh, an ivy rope, luminescent veins running through it, going slowly dark. They can scream she quoted. The question is, can we listen? Dr. Maris's final paper, mouthed Bjorn. At least one of them had done their homework. Yes, seems like she decided to make everybody listen, Karina said. The silver dust should have settled, but it still hovered in the cage. Was it semi-intelligent? It danced around McKenna's head, concentrating around the cracks in her helmet. Karina pointed it out to Alejandro wordlessly, and he immediately retrieved his toolkit, began to repair the damage while Max stood very still. Bjorn was looking up to the ceiling, probably figuring out how to restart the elevator. It had been a year since Karina was torn from her research job at the University of Naples, to join these four bastards in their search for Dr. Maris, and already she could read their movements as if they were an extension of her own. Say what you want about Eurocorps' generals, about their honey-coated ruthlessness, but they sure put together a solid team when needed, and then send the team to hell with a reassuring smile. What do you mean she meant to make us listen? Anton asked her, he had maneuvered himself into position with remarkable agility for one so broad, and was now covering the opening with a thermite blaster. Not even he could swing the QRPG in here, even though he was keeping it close. Bjorn had found the bent transducer and was stretching to repair it, get them moving again. There is one advantage in being as tall as he was. At least you can always fix a bashed elevator standing on your own two feet. Long story short, Maris felt that people bad, nature good. And since nature did not have a voice that people listened to, she decided to give it one, a voice that could not be ignored. Well, she wasn't wrong on her environmental predictions. We did bring about the apocalypse. Huh? Silent Mac had just said her thing for the day and she had chosen to utter it in support of Dr. Maris, the nutcase whose pet research project had almost cracked her own head open.
Such effortless kindness was beyond Karina. Eh, the apocalypse was forty long years ago. Stop living in the past, McKenna, Anton said. The broken music stopped completely. Karina flinched, but then Bjorn removed his hands from the ceiling and the doors closed. Elevator fixed, music silenced. They were back on track. How far down? she asked. Why? You had plans for tonight? Bjorn cracked his first smile for the day, and the cage began its descent. The elevator had taken half an hour to reach floor zero. They made no stops in between. If their intel was right, whomever had built the lab wanted it located as deep inside Vesta as possible. They would soon find out if the purpose was secrecy or containment. They stuck their backs to the cage's sidewalls right before the doors opened. But if anything was watching them, it kept in the shadows. A few minutes later, Anton and Bjorn sneaked out first. She and Alejandro followed. McKenna held the rear. Her visor's thermographic cameras detected no heat signatures ahead, but she felt no relief. When going after Dr. Maris's pet projects, basic biology meant shit. Bjorn seemed to entertain the same thoughts. From the back of his armor, a slender mechanical arm extended half a meter to the right of his body, a violet light turning on at the edge. If they were lucky, their dark adapter visors would allow them to see in the half-light while still misleading any snipers or otherworldly lurkers as to their exact position. It would buy them a few seconds, and those were usually enough for their team. Her eyes adjusted, and for a moment, Karina found herself back on Earth, entering any Eurocorps administrative building early in the morning, when most clerks were still gathered at the cafeteria and the lights hadn't been turned on yet. A long corridor stretched towards infinity, and identical wooden doors with little tags on them stood left and right. Then the sight of the water cooler brought her back to reality. There was a skeletal human hand inside it, floating in the yellow liquid, casting its shadow on the walls. To the first door on the right, Alejandro mouthed. They walked deliberately, Anton checking for any kind of snare or alarm while Bjorn covered him, both QSMGs at the ready. They did not have to take their surveillance equipment out to hear the clicking sounds from inside the first room. They were rhythmical and quick, a mix of the organic and the mechanical. She and Alejandro backtracked and hid in the shadows, while the other three stuck their backs to the wall left and right of the frame. Looks clear, let us knock, Anton mouthed after a few seconds. And knock he did, with the back end of the QRPG. The door shuddered and shook in its frame, but it held fast, and the clicking didn't stop. Nothing exploded in their faces, though, which was all the welcome-do-come-in Anton had ever needed. He swung the weapon again, broke the lock, and stepped aside just as the door swung open. Inside the huge room, five clerks were typing away on their antediluvian computers. Backs turned on them. They didn't stop their work or turn around. On their screens, green letters flew away on a black backdrop. Eurocore Armed Forces, Alejandro intoned. He had to, even though these men had probably been typing away since before Eurocore was a thing and weren't going to stop now. Karina's eyes adjusted, and then she saw it. Thick rope vines covered the floor. Reaching up to the monitors where cables would be, finding their way to the clerk's wrists. Her lips parted behind the visor, but she was too late already. One of the men turned. His face wasn't there. His head was hollow, and a black flower sprouted from the top of his spine, if he had even had a spine anymore. With his fingers still running the keyboard, he twisted his neck in an impossible angle, and an endless swarm of flies left the hollow of his head. Anton had already swung the QRPG the business way around, and Bjorn had dropped the QSMGs for the thermite blaster.
It took all of Karina's willpower not to grab their barrels and lose her hands. Instead, she screamed loud enough for the voice to echo in her helmet. Spare the PCs! No, Anton answered and fired. The projectile hit the clerk and his midsection exploded. Flies on fire came towards them. Bjorn fired the thermite blaster, and in the glow, Karina could barely make out the other four clerks getting up like broken dolls. Guided not by ropes over their head, but by the vines under their feet. The swarms covered the room, and Bjorn was not fast enough with the blaster to stop them all. Soon, every one of their sensors was choked with buzzing insects. The light on Bjorn's armor dulled as the flies descended on it. Karina used her gloved hands to clean up the visor, smearing the nanogloss with a million tiny specks of gore. And then the thud came, cavernous but still smothered among the vines. Something had landed among them. Or someone. One of their own had fallen down. Guys! she screamed. Everyone else grunted in their calms. Everyone except Silent Mac. Karina called her name. Inside her ear, she could hear Alejandro doing the same, but she could not hear McKenna answer back. It took her, she grinded through her teeth. It's dragging her inside. Stop firing the thermoblaster. It might be her best chance, Bjorn retorted. If Anton had said that, she wouldn't have believed him, but the Swede had probably calculated five binary possibilities by now. Or at least he thought he had, so he kept firing the thermite stream at eye level until his canisters emptied. I'm after her. Cover me. Six months ago, when they were still looking for Maris's lab on Earth, she would have answered she was not a soldier but a scientist. Now she growled her agreement and unlocked her own thermoblasters. She shot to Bjorn's left and Anton covered his right. As he forged ahead in the middle... Tempered sabers at hand to hack at the vines twisting themselves around his armor-encased legs. In the impossible light, she even saw the silhouette of the last-standing, monstrous clerk rising to meet him. And she saw Bjorn raise his swords in front of his chest. It took all she had not to instinctively mimic his exact movements, instead of holding her stream of fire steady. And she held her breath as the clerk's half-jaw extended down, down to the floor, and Bjorn, forced to stand still lest he burn in her fiery trajectories, took his one chance and uncrossed the blades with enough force to cut the inhuman flesh in half. She looked at Anton. He nodded and they switched the blasters off. The office space was still burning. The vines were twitching on the floor. Recovering anything from the mess was a joke, but right now, McKenna mattered most. Her body was nowhere to be found, but there was one half-open door in the back of the room, and, eyes scanning all directions, they moved towards that. The little tag spelled break room, and Karina heard her own dry laugh crack. Bjorn extended the second mechanical arm from the back of his armor, and it pushed the door backwards. There was no floor, only a bunch of roots seemingly forever descending towards the planet's heart. Karina turned on her helm light, shone it directly down the hole, and when her eyes focused on the brightness and her hands had removed most of the grime from her visor, there she saw it, crowned by the roots. McKenna's dark-skinned face, helmet gone, long black hair twined around vines. Her eyes opened, an impossible green instead of the familiar warm black, and then her face vanished down the rabbit hole. There was no point opening all doors one by one. They could hear the clicking and the sweeping and the mundane office sounds behind them, and knew already they did not have enough ammunition to counter all the plant people carrying away Dr. Maris's work into eternity. Bjorn's armor was compromised from his walk through the thermite streams, and even Alejandro could do nothing to fix it. In the end, they opted for the last door, the smallest room, where the clicking was faintest and the tag said, IT service. Karina played bait, 
She opened the door, walked up to the plant person, vines gathering around her ankles and crawling up her legs, and did not even close her eyes when she felt Anton's QRPG touch her shoulder. Pros of being short. Your fellow combatants can and will use your shoulder as an impromptu QRPG tripod to shoot the mutated plant person attempting to swallow your head. Cons of being short. After being hit, the exploding plant person will drench you in I-Core top to bottom, covering all your visor sensors in green-tinted blue. But you won't even care because you just got your hands on a computer and the blueprints for this place must be here somewhere inside it. We could take the hard disk and leave, Anton points out, loading his last projectiles into the QRPG. I'm not suggesting we do that and leave McKenna behind. However, I'm pointing out that most of the research Eurocore needs is, indeed, right here. We haven't reached Dr. Maris's lab, Alejandro notes fixing Karina's shattered cochlear implant. The sounds return, and she winces at the man's next words. Mission incomplete. We press on. Bjorn? There is enough of a smile in Anton's voice to suggest he is guessing the answer and likes it already. I believe that the best possible sample for the scientists back on Earth will be Lieutenant McKenna Zororo's body. Bjorn says. We cannot deprive Eurocore of the information. If you frame it like that, we descend. The Russian accent he had shed years ago thickens, and Karina adjusts the implant just in case. Once again into stealth mode, they move down the long corridor to reach the one door not noted on the blueprints. Unlike other doors, this one is code-protected, but such technology has long been rendered obsolete. Alejandro fixes the code breaker on the panel side, and a billion combinations flash too fast for the eye to grasp. When it settles on the correct password, four letters only shine bright green in front of their eyes. Eden. The doors slide open, and behind it there is a small round chamber. Carefully, deliberately, they step inside. Welcome, Mother. The voice echoes once and gives way to the elevator music from hell. Then the floor detaches itself from the walls and starts descending, a basalt platform taking them directly to the heart of Vesta. No doors open for them this time. Instead, the platform they ride on eventually pierces the floor and comes out on the other side. They float near the ceiling of a huge cavern, and all around them, a dark garden blossoms in bioluminescent silence. It takes a few seconds for Karina to realize the platform is descending, instead of crashing because of the carefully calibrated drafts emanating from an enormous flower of spotted flesh right beneath them. It takes three more seconds to sense that something touches the underside of the platform, and still it's hard to take her eyes off the vast night garden. When the long strand of a tongue reaches for her boot, it is almost too late, but Alejandro moves faster than her thoughts. He throws one of his own sonic knives between her feet and pierces the flesh through and through. Bad idea. The flower underneath them shrieks, and they plummet toward the black hole in its center. Their gliders deploy just in time, but they cannot coordinate their fall. Karina never had the chance to master the glide anyway. She lands arms first on a petal of thick flesh, and her skin recoils as if her armor wasn't there to protect her. Around her, the garden awakens with a roar. The flower responds and clumps its petals, trapping her inside. She roars and kicks and twists as she is pressed towards the hole in the center, and soon realizes that her roar is not her own. In just a few short seconds, it has been made one with the garden's cavernous sounds. She stops twisting and instead twitches her fingers just enough to fold the gliders. When the flower moves in and wraps her tighter, she reactivates them, and they spread violently enough to push her hands painfully open.
The flesh violently parts, and she jumps and rolls outside. Thermo blasters at hand. It takes three screaming streams of thermite before the petals catch fire, and she turns her back and runs. Where the fuck are you? She shouts. She didn't have to. The shots have pinpointed her location, and she can see Alejandro and Bjorn run towards her. Where is Anton? Here. Turn around. She hears his voice. The others do, too. They stop near her and look over her shoulder. Walk toward the huge-ass tree and you'll find me. Even Bjorn will be able to spot it. Ugh, suck your cock, Anton. Relief crawls in the edge of Bjorn's voice. They begin to move towards the huge shadow at the center of the cavern. Karina can now hear her heart, and it isn't only battle readiness that drums inside her. The bioluminescent garden crawling around her feet, but never touching her, is a bioengineer's wet, no, soaked dream. Of course they would end up in a place like that, following in Maris's footsteps. An Eden capable of eating every Adam and every Eve, setting foot inside, what a bitter god would plant after the fall. They reach the foot of the shadow tree and it lights up, drawing an angry scream out of her throat like a serpent. For the fucking tree carries fruit, McKenna hanging from her naked arms, already ripped with bioluminescent threads inside her veins, and Anton, armor torn off his body, and a vine plunged into his throat calm. Bjorn shoots and the trunk eats the bullet up. Light shoots off the wound, and for a few seconds they can see the branches, climbing up and piercing the cavern's roof, becoming the vines that had flooded the offices above and dragged McKenna down to hell. Enough! The tree purrs at them. They freeze. This is not a voice they recognize. At least not immediately. And not until Karina remembers the recordings. Dr. Maris is lecturing an indifferent audience on the perils of climate change decades ago, begging for relief. Only now she is not begging. She commands and they have to listen. You must be Lieutenant Corina Moretti. You don't want to be here, do you? You long for your son and your father's cooking, and for your piles of research back home. And you are Major Bjorn Sorensen, the man who enjoys all this a bit too much, and Lieutenant Alejandro Moreno, the mechanic. You repair their armor, and you know exactly how to take them all out. With a turn of the screw, if they become a danger to you. Nobody speaks. Great. Leave your weapons. They have no use on me. I am Eden. You can become immortal alongside me, or you can become fertilizer. She can sense the others think, looking for a way out, same as she. She looks at Anton and McKenna, eyes all green and open wide, thought plundered, and knows she would pick any death but the immortality on offer. Alejandro. She mouths silently. You never fired a shot. The mechanic takes one step forward, then another. Good catch. He takes off his helmet, breaks communication. His pale face is a corpse mask in the dark. Hungry vines climb his legs and he lets them. Fuck your core. They burned my country's forest to the ground to farm chocolate for their brats. And when I fled to their shores, they forced me to enlist just to become a citizen. He still cannot swear the stupid fuck. Eden, I'm the one who gave you McKenna. The one who didn't seal the helmet's cracks properly. I am the one who loosened Anton's glider so you could get him. I might die here with them, but I die spitting on their grave. 
Yet you hurt me too. Once, and then I heard your voice rage. I heard I had a chance to get back at them. He walks up the roots. Corina's armor is weak, where the glider snapped open inside the flower. Bjorn's armor barely holds together. Fuck them up! All I ask is that you kill me fast. No. The tree's voice crawls inside Karina's skin. You will be with me forever. You will watch them as they are drained to feed my garden. And you will truly rejoice. The vines crawl down lightning fast and snatch them. They hoist Alejandro high up. She and Bjorn are left hanging just below. Blood rushes to her head. She twists and turns and rages, but the grip is too strong. Strands crawl around her neck, looking for the helmet safety catch. Watch! Mother commands. Mother commands. And then Mother erupts. Alejandro had a full thermoblaster indeed, and reading her words correctly, had pried the twin canisters loose right above the trunk. The thermite falls out and burrows a hole too fast for Mother, for Dr. Maris, to even scream. The vines loosen, they fall, rolling in front of her eyes or images. The trunk sliced by fire. A naked woman curled inside, one with the tree, screaming as her arm is burned clean off. And then the blast, as a freed Bjorn empties his two QSMGs in her body of flesh before the tree closes back up again, covering her up to the neck. Alejandro falls, and the gliders open gracelessly, barely breaking his fall. Karina grabs her own QSMG and fires it for the first time in her life, directly in Dr. Maris's half-encased face. The garden echoes hell for the longest second and goes dark and silent as the vacuum of space. Beside her, her comrades-in-arms crawl up. How many of them? Three? All four? She cannot tell. She could turn on her small light, but she won't, unless she makes sure the hellish garden is as dead as it now feels. Corina? Bjorn? Is that you? This time, we'll take the fucking stairs. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And there you go, Demetria. Oh, thank you so much. Wow, man, and Nicole. Excellent. Man, thank you so much, ladies. An honor. 
Now we've been waiting for it, yes, and again slaps down on the on the airwaves there. Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news, Jim Sir. Greetings and bibulatory ejaculations, my protonarically chloritinous listeners, and welcome to this March 2019 science news update. I'm your host for this sadly maniacal science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, how about the not-so-idiot scientists of the month? This may not be as popular a feature as idiot scientists, but hey, let's try it out for at least this month. So, as a direct response to the now-infamous geneticist, Dr. He of China, Dr. Eric Lander and a group of other eminent biologists have gotten together to push for a five-year global ban on gene-edited babies. In the March 14th edition of the journal Nature, Lander and a bunch of other famous scientists made their thoughts quite clear on the subject of messing with the human genome when we were still so early in our understanding of what exactly we are doing. Eighteen researchers in total called for a temporary ban on creating gene-edited babies. They said specifically, quote, we call for a global moratorium on all clinical uses of human germline editing. That is, changing heritable DNA in sperm, eggs, or embryos to make genetically modified children, unquote. Among the document's signatories are CRISPR pioneers Dr. Feng Zhang of the Broad Institute of MIT and Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier, of the Max Planck Unit for the Science of Pathogens in Berlin. Sadly, no, I wasn't asked, but then again, my work has absolutely nothing to do with humans. The proposed moratorium would last about five years to give time for public education and debate about experiments. The delay would buy time for scientists to further test and further refine CRISPR-Cas9 and other gene editing tools to make them safer. The moratorium would also be voluntary, with each country pledging individually not to allow clinical trials for creating gene-edited children. Countries would make independent decisions on how long such a ban would last. These researchers are not angels, by the way. We are not proposing a complete ban of everything having to do with manipulating human genetics. Gene editing of embryos, eggs, and sperm would still be allowed for research purposes but those then couldn't be implanted in a woman's uterus to establish pregnancy. Also, researchers could still use CRISPR-Cas9 and other gene editors to treat genetic diseases in adults and children, provided that any changes to those people's DNA couldn't be passed on to the next generation. There have previously been admonitions like these, but those ethical previous agreements didn't stop Jian Kui He from editing DNA in embryos that resulted in the birth of those two babies last year. Uh, perhaps this moratorium thing will work out a little better. Molecular geneticist Dr. Paul Berg of Stanford University School of Medicine is another scientist who helped author the proposal. He admits the new call is mostly a matter of semantics, but argues that the word choice does matter. That is, using the word moratorium. Berg says, quote, if everyone is saying it would be irresponsible to do it, then why not be explicit and say it should not be done at all? Unquote. Heads of the U.S. National Academies of Sciences and Medicine in Washington, D.C., the U.S. National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and the Royal Society of Science in London published letters in support of the idea in the same issue of nature. Other scientists say they support the proposed moratorium, but aren't sure it will stop rogue scientists from copying Dr. He's rather stupid actions. Dr. Stephen Guttinger, a philosopher of biology at the London School of Economics and Political Science, has stated, quote, There's no harm in using the word moratorium. However, let's be clear. I don't think someone will say, Oh, someone used the word moratorium. I really can't do that now. Unquote. Another signer of the Nature document, Dr. Russell Altman from Stanford University says it may be easier now to get a moratorium to stick after Dr. He's breach. 
quote, it will be harder for researchers who violate the ban to find a harbor of safety. Now a ban will have a bigger weight of scientific credibility and would be more likely to be obeyed. A moratorium, if countries agree to it, would have the force of moral authority, even if it doesn't have legal weight, unquote. Okay, let's get on to our actual first news story of the evening. What is the fastest accelerating land animal on Earth? If you said a cheetah, you'd be wrong, although a cheetah is fast at 112 kilometers per hour. Its acceleration is only about 13 meters per second squared. So, unfortunately, true believers, you would be wrong for the fastest accelerating animal on Earth. So what is faster then? Well, in an attempt to catch prey, a speed demon spider can launch itself and its web at about a hundred times the acceleration of a cheetah. That makes these tiny creatures called slingshot spiders the fastest moving buggers known. This was reported by Dr. Simon Alexander of Georgia Tech on March 4th at the meeting of the American Physical Society in Boston. Found in the Peruvian Amazon, slingshot spiders weave conical webs, and these webs have a single strand attached to the tip of the cone, which the spider reels in to ramp up the tension. When the spider senses a potential meal, it releases the web. The spider and web together zing forward and staring the prey. Alexander says, quote, just like that, the spider has dinner, unquote. Using portable high-speed cameras to catch the spider's motion, Alexander and his colleagues clocked the spiders at a maximum speed of about 4 meters per second, which is incredible for something so tiny. Alexander says, quote, The slingshot spider's maximum acceleration is over 1,100 meters per second squared. Cheetahs, by comparison, accelerate at about 13 meters per second squared. So that's a stat that puts the fleet-footed cheetah to shame, unquote. All right, well, that was a short story. Next. As regular listeners to the show know, my father has Alzheimer's, and I'm always on the lookout for science stories that may talk about cures or treatments or anything to ameliorate the problem. Usually I'm on the lookout for new drug treatments, but those have been overwhelmingly disappointing lately. That is why the next story, which I'm taking with a big grain of salt, by the way, is so interesting. This is a treatment which does not use any type of pharmaceutical. In the March 14th issue of the journal Cell, Dr. Li Hui Sai of MIT's uh, Picower Institute for Learning and Memory reported that fast clicking sounds can boost brain power in mice with signs of Alzheimer's disease. These external sounds spur a type of brainwave that seems to, quote, sweep disease-related plaques from mice's brains, unquote. Sai found that sounds that hum at a rate of 40 clicks per second, or 40 hertz, seem to spur gamma waves and the clearing of amyloid beta plaques from the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a structure that's important for memory and usually it's one that's affected by Alzheimer's. A daily hour of fast clicks played by speakers above the mice's cages for seven days also improved the memories of mice genetically engineered to have signs of Alzheimer's. Compared to mice that heard randomly spaced clicks, mice that listened to 40 hertz clicks were faster in finding a hidden platform in a water maze and better at recognizing an object that they had seen before. Sai says that he still doesn't understand how sound-triggered gamma waves seem to kick off other beneficial changes in the brain. In mice, levels of a harmful form of tau in the brain, another protein implicated in Alzheimer's, dropped and blood vessels in the brain expanded, perhaps easing the disposal of those amyloid beta plaques. Immune cells called microglia were also bulked up and grew more active and attacked the plaques. When the mice were treated with both flickering lights and clicks, the effect was even stronger, Sai says. The combined treatment led to fewer amyloid beta plaques across a big stretch of the brain, including the hippocampus, 
and the prefrontal cortex, an area important for complex thinking. What's more, the microglia seem to swarm into a feeding frenzy. Sai says, quote, microglia pile up upon one another, all congregated around the amyloid plaques, unquote. Sai has co-founded a company called Cognito Therapeutics that is testing the combined light and sound approach in older people with mild to moderate cognitive impairment. He says, quote, our studies aren't done yet, but so far we haven't seen any undesirable effects, unquote. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, that, that says nothing at all about beneficial effects, just that it's not hurting anybody. Well, I'll be watching Cognito Therapeutics closely in the future. However, it's going to take quite a bit of convincing from Dr. Sai that this is not all simply BS to grab better venture capital and NIH dollars for his research. I guess I would feel a bit more sanguine about this type of research if the researcher himself had an idea of how it works at the neurocellular level. Yes, dear listeners, I'm growing more jaded in my old age. Onward and upward to the next story. When I saw my first glacier a couple of years ago in Alaska, I was amazed to see blue ice. Actual blue. Mainly toward the bottom of the glacier, where the weight and mass of the glacier itself was so great it had induced physical changes in the ice and changed its color. And the, the ice stays blue, even if it's broken away from the glacier and becomes a, an iceberg. It was not until recently I found out that bright green icebergs can exist as well. I've never seen one of these, and my first thought when I heard about it was, oh, it must be like green polar bears. It's due to algae in the ice? Okay, I was wrong. In fact, I was very wrong. A paper published last month by Dr. Stephen Warren of the University of Washington in the journal Geophysical Research suggests an entirely different source for green ice. So iceberg ice falls into three categories. White, which is what they usually appear mostly because light bounces off air bubbles trapped inside the ice and they look white. They are blue, as I suggested above, and that's the compacted ice. And that is pure ice with all the air bubbles forced out. And as I said, this forms on a berg's underside and appears blue because it absorbs light waves, warm colors like red and orange, and it reflects shorter, cooler blue wavelengths. And number three, ta-da, green. These have been known since the 1930s, and they are mysterious, and uh, they have been nicknamed jadebergs, and they've been spotted in and around Antarctica. In the early 1990s, uh, Warren proposed that the green came from microscopic carbon particles from dead organisms. When integrated into ice, these yellow carbon particles would absorb blue light, leaving green to be reflected. Later experiments, though, found that the amount of carbon in green icebergs was so low that it couldn't actually create that emerald hue. Warren says, quote, so we were left with this disturbing result, unquote. Then in 2016, Warren discovered iron oxides in a decades-old preserved green ice sample taken from the Emery ice shelf in Antarctica. Iron oxides, like rust, reflect reds and oranges, but they absorb blue light. If these particles possibly picked up from rocks crushed by the weight and friction of glaciers flowing toward the ocean, get incorporated into ice forming underwater, the result would be a vibrant green. And I've seen the pictures, and they really are a bright green. Warren hopes to return to Antarctica to collect samples to see if jade bergs really are rich in iron. If so, that could solve both a mystery and suggest a previously unknown role for this unusual ice, that is, ferrying a scarce but essential nutrient to the microscopic plankton that the entire ocean food web relies on. Warren finishes with, quote, I don't know how important green icebergs are, but I guess we'll find out, unquote. Next story, singing mice. Well, how about this? Something even weirder. Singing mice doing duets. 
In the understory of Central American cloud forests, musical mice trill songs to one another. And now a study in the March 1st issue of the journal Science tells of the charismatic creatures and how their brains orchestrate these rapid-fire duets. The paper came from the lab of Dr. Michael Long of New York University and is entitled Motor Cortical Control of Vocal Interaction in Neotropical Singing Mice. In a mouse duet, one mouse's brain directs the patterns of notes that make up songs, while the other mouse's brain coordinates the duet. These duet-brain interactions are carried out with split-second precision. Long says, quote, Our study suggests that a quirky animal from the cloud forest of Costa Rica could give us brand new insight into the rapid give-and-take in human conversations, unquote. Long adds, quote, These mice, known as Alston's singing mice, are divas. They require larger terrariums, exercise equipment, and a very special diet, which includes fresh mealworm, dry cat food, fresh fruit, and berries. And they are very vocal. If one starts to sing, it starts a symphony, unquote. The paper suggests that one brain system is thought to control the contents of the songs, but another part, the orofacial motor cortex, or the OMC, orchestrates the split-second timing needed for the mouse duets. When the team cooled the mice's OMC, slowing those nerve cells' activities, songs grew longer, suggesting that the brain region normally controls song timing. And when the researchers used a drug to silence the OMC, the mice had trouble singing duets in response to another mouse's call. This shows in a clear and convincing way that the structure is involved in this behavior. The paper states that, quote, the singing mice's OMC may not align exactly with the brain areas used to pace human chatter. Still, the results may ultimately yield clues to human conversations, which often proceed at similarly fast clips. That pursuit might ultimately lead to therapies for disorders that affect communication, like strokes and autism, unquote. Okay, so what do these little buggers sound like? Well, here's a recording from Long's lab. You are first going to hear the mouse that starts the duet, and then you will hear the second mouse who is finishing the duet. The singing is a very high-pitched whistle. Do not expect it to be like opera or bird song for that matter. There you go. Like I said, not like birdsong or opera. Okay, the last story of the evening is related to the previous story. It's about singing and our traditional topic, sex. Apparently, it's becoming harder and harder to mate in our noise-polluted society for certain animals that use song to communicate. Just how much this is affecting certain animals is made clear in the new paper in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. It's entitled, Adaptive Changes in Sexual Signaling in Response to Urbanization. The paper came out of the lab of Dr. Walter Hafwerk of the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. So Hafwerk has found that Tugara frogs in Panama face a trade-off between, well, sex and death, while males use calls of varying levels of complexity to attract females to mate, these same calls attract the attention of predatory bats and little blood-sucking flies, midges. Over millennia, frogs have evolved strategies to balance this trade-off. But they haven't had millennia to deal with their shrinking habitat. Cities have grown where trees have been harvested, and frogs have had to adapt to these changing conditions. To quantify the differences that Tungara frogs face between life in the forest and life in urban areas, Hafwerk measured light and noise intensity in the two locations. 
As you would expect, the cities are brighter and the cities are louder. But rather than getting stressed out by city life, the urban frogs are apparently more relaxed. And for good reason. There's fewer bats and fewer midges. So they've been pretty much released from those two risks of death. And because of that, city frogs can focus on sex. The city frogs call more, produce calls with greater complexity, and continue to call when interrupted by eavesdropping scientists. However, forest frogs clam up if you just look at them funny. Halfwork says, quote, These changes are not only permissible, but also necessary. The simple calls of forest males don't cut it in the city. Urban females are not impressed. By contrast, forest females swoon over the complex calls of urban males. City males are apparently sexier everywhere, unquote. Remember Aesop's fable of the city mouse and the country mouse? When the country mouse traveled to town with his cousin, he was frightened by dogs and quickly returned to the safety of the country. In reality, country frogs have no such luck. If they travel to the city and then back to the forest, they will find the forest is a greater den of dangers than the city ever was. So how do city frogs fare when compared to the quiet forest? Surprisingly, you wouldn't have thought, but surprisingly, rather than continuing to shout and then getting eaten, city frogs dial down the complexity of their calls to match the increased risks of the forest. In other words, city living has selected for flexible frogs whose behavior is conditioned by the risk. Halfwerk finishes with, quote, We do not know whether call flexibility has any downsides in the forest, but if not, we worry that forest frogs may be doomed if increasing urbanization brings Tungara frogs from the forest and the city into more frequent contact. This, unfortunately, seems very likely, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. Keep an eye out for green icebergs. Be glad you're not the prey of the slingshot spider. Keep those mating songs to a minimum volume when out in the country. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Oh, Jim, 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 Jim. Oh, Jim, Jim. Thank you so much, lad. It is brilliant. Thank you, indeedy. So that is the last show of March. We're kind of getting geared up there. They're kind of spring. Well, we've had the first day of spring, but that kind of long, you know, where the kind of the clocks spring forward or f- jump forward or whatever it is. Oh, exciting long nights. Oh, yes, that's what I want. Huge thank you. If you helped support my little polytunnel, there's talking about long nights. I can get into the garden there now. If you didn't realize I'm running a little GoFundMe, just if you want to, you know, just tip me personally, just say thank you, Tony, for. I don't know how long it's been, to be honest, since I've been sitting here. 12 years, 13, 40, oh, I don't know, was it 2000? Early 2006. Man, man. Anyway, there's a GoFundMe. I'll put a link on if you would like to kind of just buy a little pint. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and 
my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home With nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.